Good to see you all. My name's Richard, if you didn't catch that from Nathaniel. And uh, great to be together, as always. If you're a regular part of the church, you'll know that at the moment we're preaching through uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, and we've called this particular preaching series Prepare. And this is because we have some big things coming up in the life of the church that we need to prepare for in order to maintain the strength of our church community and our witness to the world in this next season of life. And that's because on the 8th of January, we would have completed our building project up at Alder Road. Can I get a whoop for that? Great. And uh, we'll be starting to meet and organize ourselves in two congregations again, one up at Alder Road and one here. And of course, people have to work out over the next coming weeks and months where they're going to be based on what they feel God has got for them and calling them into in this next season, season of life. It's a really big organizational change for us. And we're doing this because we're in faith that God has led us in this way and has done for a number of years in order to better be able to reach more people for the gospel and to bring them into relationship with him and therefore also with us in the church. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. This prepare is prepare for relationships. Now, this is one of those messages where I am primarily speaking to people who would call Gateway their home, and so you should probably hear it like that, but if you're not a regular attender here, there should be some level of invitation for you anyway, because you'd be very welcome to, as Nathaniel's already said, make Gateway your home. We've been meeting in one place for a long time through COVID and through the building project, and after a long season of being together come the 8th of January, there actually may be some moments of pain associated with meeting in two places, not seeing quite so regularly those with whom we have a genuine day-to-day -day committed relationship. We've had to work through some of those issues in my home, and I'm sure that you have and will be too. And so we need to prepare for this. And that will mean thinking through and planning and being purposeful for how we relate to one another as well within the family of God in this new season. And it's important that we're tracking this through the book of 2 Corinthians, which was written by Paul, because a hallmark of Paul's whole life and ministry as he traveled through the Middle East and the Mediterranean, preaching the gospel and planting churches, was that everywhere he went, he was engaged in strong gospel relationships with others. He was always part of a community of people, fellow leaders, apostles, missionaries, friends, people in whose house he stayed as he traveled, different people at different times in his life who he deeply loved. This is evident throughout all the books that Paul writes. Just look at the beginning and look at the end of the books that Paul writes. And they're always uh, addressed to a group of people, always greeting individuals and thanking people. And actually, the central purpose of 2 Corinthians has to do with fixing broken relationships. Paul is writing this particular letter to his friends, the church in Corinth, because they're in disarray theologically, and consequently, the relationship between him and them has broken down. And so he writes a series of letters to them, and he sends various friends to deliver these letters, of which 2 Corinthians is just one. And he then receives different friends from Corinth who update him on events in the church, and he, he himself visits them over a number of years. And his primary goal in all of this 
is to help the church to do there what we are still called to do here at Gateway, which is love God and love people. So when you boil the Bible down, that's what it comes down to. That's what we're called to. Paul gave his life to that endeavor, and everywhere he went, he did it in relationship with trusted, loved people in the family of God. And so on one occasion, Paul, we're going to try and do some maps. This went really well in the first service. Well done, Andy. Let's see how we do this one. Paul, who is in Ephesus in uh, Turkey, writes a letter to his friends across the sea in Corinth in Greece. And he's trying to rebuild this relationship with them and to re-preach the gospel to them, to bring them back into kind of sound theological and relational shape. And he sends this letter to them via a close friend of his, Titus. And he says to Titus, you go and deliver the letter and I will eagerly await you in your response. But in the meantime, the mission of God must continue. So I'm going to keep on traveling north towards Macedonia, Greece, where I must keep preaching the gospel. Midway there, there's a city called Troas. Let's meet there in a few months and see where we are. And what follows is uh, the, the verses we're going to be unpacking is what then follows as this kind of happens. So as agreed, Titus goes to Corinth to deliver Paul's letter. Paul travels north to Troas. And then we get 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12 to 13. Paul says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Paul has arrived in Troas, as they previously agreed, and he's preaching the gospel successfully, but no Titus. He hasn't shown up. And this causes Paul such concern and pain and anxiety that he hasn't found his brother, his, his close friend, Titus, that he just shuts up shop and leaves. And he carries on up north to Macedonia, hoping to find him there. He would have done that probably because the shipping season would have meant that's more, most likely where he would have been. And on top of this, Paul is already carrying the weight of his mission to serve and to build all these churches that he's begun. And his relational breakdown with the Corinthians has just added to this. He's under pressure, he's lonely, he's anxious, he's upset, doesn't know where he stands with the Corinthians, and he can't find his friend Titus, the only person who can answer some of these questions. And so in a very Paul-like way, he explains this utter turmoil that he finds himself in, in verse 13, like this. I had no peace of mind. I couldn't find my brother, so I, I left. God sends Paul to the city Troas of about 40,000 people to preach the gospel. And doors are opening all over the place for this. And Paul is unable to carry on this really fruitful work because of his inner turmoil at missing his friend and the broken relationship that he felt with his friends in Corinth. It's actually a pretty sad account. And so the, the guys reading this letter in Corinth are wondering, as they're reading this, how Paul must have felt about this. And they're kept in the dark for five more chapters until we get to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, where they, they read about how the situation resolves for Paul. This is important. Paul's talked about inner turmoil. This is now how it resolves. He says, For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. We still had no rest. We were, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, 
comforted us eventually by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Think about that for just a moment. Paul leaves Troas full of anxiety and pain, relational breakdown, and he arrives in Macedonia in exactly the same state. Conflict on the outside, fears within. Until he meets up with Titus again. And even better, Titus brings good news that the Corinthians are sending their love and their friendship to Paul. And Paul considers all this the comfort of God. That's a really important thing to just note how God sometimes comforts. I've had moments just this week, actually, where people have come into my life and provided extraordinary comfort at a time when I've needed it. In this community here at Gateway, we often talk about church being family, that through Christ, we have been knitted together as brothers and sisters into the family of God, with Christ as our head and God as our Father. One family. And on the 8th of January, we're asking people, for the sake of the mission of God, to either leave the family home here or to be part of a community here that sends people up to Alder Road. I'll be honest, we've thought about this a lot in my home, and there's been some tears over this in, in my family. And it's a kind of a conflicting kind of tears, conflicting emotions. We're so joyful that we get to partner with God and so grateful that He's on the move through the gospel here, taking ground in BCP through Gateway, and that we get to be a part of that. And on the other hand, we're sad because we, I love you, and you're my brothers and sisters, and we hopefully feel the same way about one another. We certainly should do. My kids have grown up in this community. Vix and I have done our 30s and 40s in this church. We've watched and been alongside so many of you. If you've done the same, and in this next season, that will change to some degree. And we should feel that, and we should process it healthily, and we should take time to consider how we maintain relationships and fight for unity. We are one church, but meeting in two different places. If you've got or if you've had kids of a certain age, you may be familiar with some of those emotions. Over the summer, my kids went to New Day, a youth camp, and Vix and I were just delighted for the parenting break. And so we went away and had a great time ourselves. And then after a few days, I started to think, oh, this is what it's going to be like in a few years' time when my kids become adults and they leave home. And it was, it was painful. Yes, Hannah, it really was. <laughs> and I'm already starting now to think about what that'll be like in the future, how I'll relate to my kids and how I'll be able to stay in their lives in a way that serves them well and possibly their own families if they get married and have kids and so on. And I'm preparing for that now so that I have a framework for how to respond then. And that's really what I'm asking us to think about today in the context of our gateway family relationships as we prepare for January the 8th. Let's, um, let's have a look at some of the kind of the biblical reasons as to why this is such an important issue for us as Christians and how relationship is at the heart of the Christian story. The first thing I want to say about this is that we were made for relationship. When you boil it all down... We were made, designed, the Bible says, knitted together in our mother's wombs for a relationship with God. That's how the story of human history starts and ends. Made by a heavenly father as an expression of his overflowing love, 
made to be in close relationship with him. Sin destroys that, and so he sends his son, his only son, into the world to die for us. So that what? So that we might be brought back into relationship with him. And the story, of course, ends when we live in relationship with him as one family for all eternity. It's an unmissable part of what it means to be human, that we are built for relationship with God and with others. It's built into us for our health and our survival in the same way that gills are built into a fish. And however you try and analyze that fact, and wherever you go to try and find that sense of connection with others, whether in all the right places or all the wrong places, what all of this means is that deep down inside, if you are not in right relationship with God and with others and with yourself, you will in some way be broken. And brokenness leads to hurting. And hurting leads to sin. And sin leads to broken relationships with God and others. It's a vicious cycle of destruction to not be in right relationship with God and with others. I was, um, I was reading a book recently by an American writer called James K.A. Smith. And he was talking about this issue. And he cited a research project where a group of people would play a game of catch, just tossing a ball to one another. In fact, I think we're going to demonstrate that now. So can I have a ball, please? Need a couple of volunteers. Thanks, Liam. That's you. And uh, who else? Prisca, you as well. And John, why don't you come up as well? Brilliant. Thanks for volunteering, guys. Give him a round of applause. <laughs> Liam, you come stand on this side of me. Prisca and John, you stand on this side of me. Thanks for volunteering. Great. Feeling the relational warmth and connection already? Okay, so this is a really simple game. What we're going to do is we're going to pass the ball up and down the line. Only to the person next to you. So I'll pass John, John, blah, blah. Okay, got it? Everyone happy with that? Good. This is how the research project went. No. You didn't follow the rules. This is how the research project went. One, two, one, two, and okay, the person next to you. Okay, it's very important, otherwise the research project does not work. Right. Erase from your minds everything you've just seen. This is a scientific research project. Yes. Great. Isn't this fun? Guys having fun? I'm enjoying this. It's great. You guys watching having fun? Great. This is the research project. Excellent. Good. Guys, thanks very much. That was great. Wonderful. Why don't you give them a round of applause? Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks very much. Liam, how was that for you? Yeah, great. great. <laughs> Liam's a close friend, and he's a good sport, so uh, I'm not deliberately trying to dishonor him. I'm actually trying to point out how this research project actually worked. The scientists set up the game in such a way that one person in the group was always left out. And of course, at first, giggles, and the person's trying to make themselves known, and then they start to conclude the ball's never going to come their way. So they withdraw, and they perhaps get a bit embarrassed, and they pretend they never wanted to play anyway. And the interesting thing is, the, what the researchers discovered is that the person left out would later report an increased sense, of, uh, in, increased sense that life is meaningless and experience a loss of purpose. Text Liam later on, tell him you love him. Smith says that the game is really a way to just pull back the curtain on what is just a fundamental human need. Now imagine, he asks, that this isn't an experiment, but it's the shape of life. The ball never comes your way. No one calls, no one says your name, no one knows you, no one listens to your thoughts. This is a stunning statistic. The Center for Social Justice 
says that the effect of loneliness on life expectancy is similar to smoking and worse than obesity. One study tells us that it can increase the risk of death by as much as 30%. Just let that sink in for a moment. There's a similar link with loneliness and poverty. This is one of the reasons we open this building on a Thursday and Friday for our Gatehouse initiative. Having two close friends reduces the likelihood of poverty by nearly 20%. Fighting for a relationship is really a fight for your life in many ways. I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing such extraordinary queues as people uh, kind of queue up and shuffle past to pay their respects to the Queen as well. I think it, it, it kind of identifies that there is a deep longing for people to belong somewhere and to associate with others as they do so. And I also believe that this inbuilt desire for relationship and connection is what lies just beneath the surface of why so many people go looking for this connection in casual sexual pursuits or pornography, and why pornography and casual sex is ultimately so bankrupt. That's because we're designed to know that we are intimately seen and deeply understood and covenantally loved, that perhaps somebody loves us and would give themselves to us and maybe even give themselves for us. Which, of course, explains why pornography and casual sex can never fully satisfy this deep need for human connection, for friendship, for relationship. That can only come, as Smith points out, from the one who made me a friend who is closer than a brother, who laid down his life for his friends, and who calls to me through others, through friends. This is the framework, the theological framework, through which we need to view human relationships. And it all comes down to what some people regard as the, the chief ethic, if you want to be smart about it, the chief ethic of the Christian life, the meaning behind all the meanings of the Bible. It's love. God is love. It's as an overflow of his love that he created us. It, it's like it bubbled up out of him. It's an expression of his love that he would want us to have relationship with him and know the love that he has known with the Spirit and the Son for all eternity. It's why there is this inner craving for connection and such pain when families and friendships break down, like was true for Paul with the Corinthian church. It's why relationship and connection is good for our health and psychology, and loneliness is a literal physical killer. It's why at the heart of our Christian faith, it's not a list of rules or instructions, it's a person, it's Jesus, who invited you first and foremost into relationship with him, and then secondarily instructs us to go out and do the same with others. That's what we're built for. That's what we're built for. We're built for a relationship with God, and we're built for a relationship with each other, and we need to fight for and to protect that as we approach January the 8th. The second thing is that the church, good news, you're here this morning, is essentially a relational community bound together by and reflective of the gospel. That's why our togetherness and our gathering is so crucial. I grew up on the other side of the world to most of you. I'm 
decades different in age to some of you. Some of you vote differently to me. Some of you by nature may find me really easily relatable, and others of you will be irritated by me. That's okay. Personalities and preferences and life histories are complex, but what joins us together, what is bigger than that, what joins us as one people is the gospel. It's the gospel, the story of Jesus, the Son of God who gave up his life so that you and I can be known by God and that now we all share the same Savior, the same Heavenly Father, that the same Spirit infills us is a bond tighter than blood. That's the basis of why the Bible calls us brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God. That's how we are, brothers and sisters. This place, the church, this is, this is my central locus of belonging. And it's here that I offer and ask for gospel coaching to live this life. And it's here because we share the same spiritual DNA and are living by the same values for the, the same goal, the, the upward call of God in Christ, Paul calls it. It's here that we should be looking for our encouragement to keep going on after God, cheerleading one another, to keep our eyes fixed not on what is temporal, but what's eternal. It's here that when the big life issues come up, loss or death or pain, that we find our consolation as we pull together as one people and point each other back to the great consoler, Jesus. It's also, therefore, here that we should ask for help from one another to make life's big decisions. If you're considering a big change in your life, don't make that decision alone. It's just not biblical. Get eyes and voices all around you. The book of Proverbs tells us that plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Translation, if you, if you want to make good plans, if you want to stay safe, connected, and succeed in all that God has for you, stay in committed godly relationships and ask for help and advice before you take the big job or move house or emigrate or get married. I have seen this so many times, people making decisions in isolation and getting themselves into all sorts down the line. Ask your friends in the Lord what they think as well. You know me, friend, and you know the same God that I do, and you know that our highest purpose in life is to love and serve God. Knowing these things and knowing my personality and character, I've been asked to move up to Manchester for the big job. What do you think? And what do you think I need to think about? And what do you think God is speaking to me? Does Scripture line up with what I think He's saying and what I'm planning? I can tell you I've had wise gospel friends stop me from doing all sorts of crazy by having those sorts of conversations. And I'd like to think I've offered them the same service as well. You can't do that with people who follow you on Insta. You can't do that with a casual sexual relationship. You can't do that with people outside of the gospel community in quite the same way, because the gospel is our framework for decision-making and operation. So you can't really even do it effectively at the bowls club or with the guys at football. You can't really even do it completely effectively with a therapist, who, by the way, might be a really useful voice for your emotional health, but you can do it here in the church with your brothers and sisters and friends in the Lord who care for you and who God has called to walk alongside you in every season of life. One God, one Father, one people connected in Christ through the gospel. Think for a moment. There just is not, in that sense, any other organizational institution on planet Earth like the church. 
as we prepare for January the 8th, let's, let's commit to friendship, to gospel coaching one another, to transparency where necessary and with vulnerability where that's required as well. And let's make plans for how to maintain our relationships. Let's be on the front foot and active about this. Let's be careful with our language as well. I, I know how easy it is to become territorial about these things, how tempting it is to joke about one congregation being better than another or one leader being better than another or one location being better than another. Let's not do that. Paul humbled himself constantly out of love for the church, for the other. He would have probably been the most clever and most qualified person in any room he walked into. He could have boasted about the thousands of people that he'd led to Christ, to the cities he'd literally turned on their heads for the gospel, to the tens of churches that had sprung up in the wake of his wonderful preaching. Do you know what he boasted in? He boasted in Jesus's church in Corinth. He boasted in his weakness. He boasted in Christ the boast of the nations through whom and by whom every aspect of our lives is made possible and without whom nothing is possible. He loved deeply in imitation of his master Jesus. And so too must we. And this is why he was so troubled at his missing friend Titus and so deeply grieved not to be in good relationship with his brothers and sisters in Christ in Corinth. That's the basis of his anxiety. He doesn't know where his friend is, and he's out of relationship with the Corinthians. He loves the Corinthians. I'm not sure he was particularly bothered about Corinth, but he loves the Corinthians. I'm not particularly bothered about this building. It's all right, but that's not why I belong to this church. I love God, and I love you. And what keeps me coming back here week after week is that fact, and it causes me to rejoice when you rejoice. And it helps me to right myself when I feel grieved by someone. And I deeply believe, and I think this is a failing of our culture, that love is, as much as anything, a decision. Our culture repeatedly will feed us and tell us that love means feeling great. It's a many splendid thing. And of course, there are lots of warm and fuzzy emotions associated with love. We're not machines. We should feel that way. But what keeps me married and faithful and committed, please God help me to stay that way, is a decision to do so because I have decided to love my wife. And come what may over the years, please God, I will continue to love Vix and to stay in covenant relationship with her in the days when I don't feel that good about our relationship because I have made a decision of the will. And I have decided to love God. And I've decided to love his people. And there is therefore no going back. We fight for relationship as much as anything through a conscious act of the will and a decision not to do otherwise. And all of my energy for all of this, and yours as well, should come from the model of God who has also made a decision to covenant and to commit himself to us for all eternity. And so my marriage, my love for you, your love for one another should also be similarly rooted. A decision to love and to prefer the other person because that's what Jesus did for us. So in light of all of this, I want to give us some quick-fire thoughts on how to apply this as we approach January the 8th. Love one another. Make that decision. Decide now 
that if you've committed to God, and if you've committed to this church community, then you're making a decision to commit to the individuals within the church. And that means we bear each other's burdens, ask, and really listen to each other. Ask how work is, how family is, how their faith life is. Ask how you can be praying for them. Vix very often says to people, what's the one thing I can be praying for you this week? I love that. It's a great thing to do. It's bearing one, one another's burdens. Forgive one another. I've been hurt and let down by people at times in the church, and I've hurt and let people down too. Never with malice, but it's happened nonetheless. Chances are that's true for you too. We're human. Forgive. And make the decision now to forgive again when it happens after that. God has forgiven us so that we might forgive others. Jesus said, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's not right to come to the communion table on Sundays and claim solidarity with Jesus and his people if you have unforgiveness or malice in your heart towards somebody that you're claiming to be united with as you eat the bread and sip down the wine. So do the hard yards if you need to. Speak to them if you have to. Apologize if you have to. And train yourself in the art of being forgiving. <coughs> Believe the best in one another. It's going to be really easy in the next few months, and really much easier, actually, when we're in two congregations, to fall into the trap of hearsay or to feel hurt that somebody hasn't texted you on your birthday or the fact that you haven't been invited to every social event and feel let down by them. Just don't. I teach my teenage girls this all, all the time. Some things never change. God's love for you will never change. My love for you will never change. Some things do change. Relationships change. They change and they evolve as life moves forward. It's just part of life. So when these things come up for you in the next season, choose to believe the best. Make that decision. No one is deliberately conspiring to exclude you, but human fallibility means that it probably will happen. So don't give the enemy a foothold or let a bitter root of malice rise up in you. Believe the best in them anyway and invite them to your next gathering. Speak well of each other. Say hello and thank you. Appreciate when people serve in the church. Let others know how much you appreciate someone's good character and how they've influenced and had an effect in your life. Try telling someone in the church you love them. I'm, I'm terrible at this, but I've got a couple of friends who lead church, churches elsewhere in the country and we'll speak on the phone from time to time and every single time we speak, they both say, I love you, mate, and I'm praying for you. It undoes me and it points me to Jesus because it reminds me that if you're a child of God then we're in this together for life, this one and the next. And it's an incredible witness to those outside the church to observe this too, which is probably why Jesus said these incredible words, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. That's a pretty incredible thing to say, and it's really not a difficult thing to do. This final one's a little bit more thorny, but I think it's crucial as well, particularly for someone who's wired like me, taking into account that different people have different personalities and therefore different tolerances for this sort of thing. But I think if we're going to run this race together and stay the course for Jesus in a hostile world, then we've got to be robust in our relationships in the church. Not harsh, not coercive, but robust. A true friend is not an enabler of error or sin in your life. A true friend, true love, isn't afraid to say, hey, don't go down that road. It won't do you good. 
Or, hey, man, I heard you bawling out your wife or your kids the other day, and I want more for you and I want more for them. Is everything okay? Can I help? Can I pray for you? Can I walk alongside you in this? It asks one another, as we very often do in our own eldership team, we're all really close friends, if Satan was going to take you out right now, how would he do this? And how can I pray for you to stand against his attack? That's servant leadership. That's sacrificial friendship. James K. Smith again. The true friend is the other who has the courage to impose a conviction, to tell the truth, who paints a substantive picture of the good, who prod and prompts you to change course and chase it, and promises to join you on the way. That's a beautiful kind of robustness in friendship. Help me to live better. I don't need friends who flatter me and enable my sin. We need to be, of course, sensitive and skillful in how we do this with each other, but I need friends who encourage me in the Lord and help me to stay the course when I am very often tempted to run off it and follow after my own desires. And so do you. And finally, and most importantly, let's come back to where Paul ultimately roots his relational security and finds his comfort. Back to our passage. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them, and went on to Macedonia. But then, the next verse, the all-important verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Paul loves Titus. He loves the Corinthians, and he's not going to give up on pursuing a relationship with him. But when that looks under threat and he has no peace, thanks be to God who always leads us. And he uses the imagery of captives, because God will never let you go. He loves you too much. That's what covenant means. He's made a decision. That's what biblical relational connection should look like. Paul finds his relational connection, his deep need for connection with another, not by losing his head and compromising in cheap substitutes, but by reminding himself that he is part of the victory procession of Jesus that he and you and I all belong to. We're all in this together. 8th of Jan, but really all of life. That's why it's called the family of God. One body held together by our love for one another and our head who is Christ. Christ has gathered us one by one into this family in this season of life. He knows what he's doing and he knows what we need and he knows that you and I need one another and he knows that so long as we stay in him, we are unbreakably connected. In this next season, let's, let's fight, let's trust, let's believe, let's decide, let's commit, and let's prepare for relationship. Should we pray? I'd love to pray with individuals afterwards. I'm sure some of the other guys here would as well if this has uh, in some way impacted you or you need help in this regard. But let's just place this before the Lord now. Father, I, I do thank you that Really, everything I've spoken about today is modeled on what you've already done by making a decision out of love to commit yourself to a people. And you're never going back on that. And I thank you that there is therefore now nothing that can separate us from you. Lord, I pray that we would live with that knowledge in our hearts, that we are never alone so long as we're in you. And that we are, as a community, a communion of saints, of believers, of followers, of sons and daughters, of brothers and sisters, one people in you, therefore. 
God, I pray that you would help us to be knitted better together through love and relationship and strength and preference for the other in this church. Lord, let the world look on us and see that you are in heaven because we love one another. God, I pray today you'd strengthen us to that end and that you'd be glorified. Amen.